0: Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 12-20. through Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me, bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Next week begins the season of Advent and with that comes the celebration of our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. I don't know if you uh, ever read the story of the shepherds, which I'm sure you have. And I want to read this little part for you. And it says in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And This story is dramatic because it actually takes place in the evening. And while obviously it is quite startling to have a a group of angels present themselves before you, but it's also the contrast of the fact that they were in the darkness and in really dark places suddenly a bright light shines forth it must have been shocking to the point where they probably collapsed onto the floor the, the reality is that when it is very dark light becomes that much brighter and so it's no surprise at all that we see not only in Jesus' birth but also in his life that when he encounters fierce darkness the light of Christ shines even brighter. And so from our passage today in John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20, we will see how the light of Jesus does three things. First, it leads us out of darkness in verse 12. Second, it points us to the truth in verses 13 through 18. And then third, it shows us the Father in verses 18 through 20. We'll look at what Jesus says and how it leads us out of darkness in verse 12. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I don't know if you've ever experienced a sense of foreboding and despair, especially late in the evening. So often those are the times where couples will have their greatest conflicts. If you are married and you think back to some of the times where it just seems so oppressive, your conflict, you might have recognized that so often it happens at night, and sometimes late at night, and sometimes right before you're about to go to sleep. Granted, it's probably because you're tired physically, and that is definitely a factor. But there is something to the night that surrounds you, and it just feels despairing. There is a a note that most police departments report that half of the crimes that take place happen at night which is makes sense but the majority of violent crimes take place at night murder rape robbery it's actually quite a stark contrast between the two and the reason is because with darkness the bible describes it as a a a correlation to evil itself to sin the psalmist says in Psalm 82.5, he describes the wicked this way. He says, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. Earlier, Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So why does scripture compare darkness to evil? Why is that the case? probably one significant reason is because things appear hidden in darkness one stark illustration of this is found in the Old Testament Ezekiel who was one of the prophets he reports and he God shows him a, a vision a scene that's actually taking place it's actually taking place in the temple and in this temple a place where God has set himself to be dwelling to be present in this holy place. And by the way, if you go deep into the inner reaches of the temple, at the furthest point, at the center point of this temple is the inner courts and the most holy place where only God dwelt and where the high priest only went in once a year. God takes Ezekiel and he brings him in a vision into the courts of the temple at that moment to allow him To see what exactly is going on I want to read this for you in Ezekiel chapter 8 verses 7 through 13 God said to Ezekiel go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here so I went in and saw and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel and before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them each had his censer in his hand and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up then he said to me son of man have you seen what the elders of the house of israel are doing in the dark each in his room of pictures for they say the lord does not see us the lord has forsaken the land this darkness that the lord shows ezekiel reveals an illusion The illusion is that the priest thought that the Lord does not see us. And that's in essence what darkness is. Darkness is a place where there's an illusion. The illusion is that God does not see. You see, you see yourself, you know your hidden thoughts. And in that place of darkness is where the most hideous of sins occur, the most vile. There's a reason why that drunkenness so often occurs in the dark hidden with shame, or maybe adulterous affairs. Pornography is viewed in the dark where no one knows. All sorts of uh, rancor and anger and rage, and really our mouths become even more filthy in the dark. Our thoughts become filthy in the dark. And there's a mantra that goes along with that. The Lord will not see, he does not see. Think of your own thoughts. Your thoughts are one place that no one knows about, not your loved ones, no one, except for you and except for God. But the thing is, we think that God does not see that. Satan is a antagonist, he is a tempter, and he's always there telling you that God does not see you. He doesn't know you, but listen to what David describes darkness when it comes to God. He says in Psalm 139, 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. Jesus adds in Luke 12, 3, therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed to the housetops. This concept of darkness and hiddenness, it's a sham. It's a mirage, it's, it's not true. That there is nothing hidden from God. It is Satan's great lie. It is a lie that says that if you keep it to yourself and do what you wanna do, no one else will know and you will get away with it. Lies have that concept in mind. We think that if we tell a lie that we tell that person and we continue that lie, that deception, we'll get away with it, no one will know but we see here that that's absolutely untrue. God sees everything. Everything you do in the dark, everything you think that is hidden from God, God knows absolutely everything. The manifestation of this is found in verse 12 of John chapter eight. Jesus is the light of the world. If we look at John chapter one, verses nine through 10, Jesus says, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus tells us that the world is filled with darkness. And the very reason he comes into the world is to break the power of darkness and to provide light so that we can actually see him. I don't know if you've ever sensed this type of darkness in your world. The darkness comes in all sorts of forms. Sometimes it comes in physical weariness and injury, sometimes psychologically, mentally. Sometimes there's this sense of oppressiveness. If you've ever had a panic attack, you've driven in your car and suddenly your chest feels tight. You almost feel like you're having a heart attack. You go to the doctor and you find out that actually all your vital signs, all the tests, they come back fine. You're in good health. And the question is, why does that happen? Because there is an ever-growing darkness in your soul, in your heart. In the past few weeks, in our uh, prayer list on WhatsApp, you just take a look at it, and you just see prayer after prayer request after prayer request from diseases, people dying, people we care about. Uh, And then you look at our global partners, who actually right now are going through some real challenges, almost all of them. And as I've been praying over them, you go through it each day and you just think how are we going to sustain this prayer <laughs> these are too ma- you almost feel like there are too many prayer requests the darkness seems full on top of that just open the news we have two major wars going around in the world the economy what is 2024 gonna look like is there gonna be a recession it's uh, fraught with all sorts of fears and anxieties Maybe your family's extended families. Some of your parents are in their 80s. Literally, you could be receiving a call tomorrow, right after you get home today, saying that your mother and father has died. There's an impending doom that just is constant. And the whisper is that you should despair. You should feel hopeless. In this world, there is brokenness, and sin and we know that one day there will be no more sin but right now disease suffering sorrows they are ever present but our savior came to be the light in the midst of darkness he pierces through the darkness darkness alone by itself is troubling despairing and it is hopeless it is no wonder that the answer to all of our darkness in accordance with the world is distraction, medication, um, focus on something other than what is imposing and impending upon you. But in Christ, the answer is not trying to medicate yourself or to make yourself so busy that you forget, but it is in Christ that he is the hope, the comfort, the joy, even though there is darkness it's not that darkness is gone in this world it's that he is the light in the midst of this darkness this is what Jesus does say about his light he doesn't say he's going to get rid of darkness in this world as long as we are in this world there will always be darkness but if you look at verse 12 again it's follow me follow me as I lead you in the darkness there is no promise of lifting darkness in this world. There is the promise of light in the midst of darkness. You will not walk in darkness. And that means you have to follow him. Imagine a, a blind person. They have to cross this whole floor. But it, on this floor are these gigantic pits. These pits lead to 1,000 foot drops. I have uh, um, a fear of heights. so. That's just one of my greatest nightmares. And so if if you have all these holes and there's just this one sliver path that leads along the way through these holes to get you through. You tell your blind friend and you say, hold my hand. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust that I will lead you to safety. But what if he says, I'm not holding your hand. I can do this by myself. I don't need you and he pulls away his hand, what's going to happen to him as he tries to make his way to the back of this room? He's gonna to fall to his death. When Jesus says, I will provide the light in the midst of darkness, but there's one condition, I need you to trust me. I need you to follow me. Even though it is fearful, it sometimes can be incredibly unnerving to not be in control. The instinct is to say, I don't need your hand. I can do this by myself. But the promise that Jesus gives in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is he is going to provide the light, the hand by which he carries you, he pulls you, and he directs you so that you will be led to safety. But do you believe him? Do you trust him? Next, we see that the darkness keeps us from seeing the truth, but the light of Christ points us to truth. The Pharisees in verse 13 say to Jesus, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And then Jesus responds, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. John 1.5 describes their hearts this way. John says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So there is light, it is shining brightly in the darkness, but for those who are in the dark, who refuse to see the light, they don't understand. They're always in the dark. And if you've ever tried to tell someone who is adamantly opposed to Christ and you share the gospel with them, you tell them about the good news of following Christ, of what it has done to transform your life and to give you peace where there is no peace and joy where joy shouldn't be expected, you get a sense of the opposition, the, the stone heart. And you know that there is nothing you will say, no matter how rational the argument, no matter how reason, no matter how intellectual, it doesn't matter what they see or hear, they will not believe. They will always have a, a word of opposition, a word that says, I cannot believe it. And that should make sense in light of what Jesus is saying and what the Pharisees are like. They just are absolutely committed to reject Christ. Remember, they saw Jesus as uneducated, as someone of no repute because he came from Nazareth, even though they were wrong and didn't understand that actually he was born in Bethlehem and the Messiah does come from Bethlehem and that's exactly where he was from. But all of that is left behind. They have decided for themselves, regardless of anything that Jesus says, to reject Christ, no matter what. And the thing about the Pharisees is they start and revert back to Mosaic law and they say, you know what? You say what you say, but you don't have witnesses. Jesus says that he has many witnesses. He has the ultimate witness of the father. We'll talk about the father later. But even if you were to leave that behind, there's two problems with what the Pharisees are accusing of Jesus. First, they are describing this concept of two or three witnesses, but in Mosaic law, it's in criminal cases that those are required. And so this was certainly not a criminal case, so you don't necessarily need two or three witnesses to say what Jesus is saying. But if you did, which is a second problem with what they're saying, is that Jesus had far more than two or three witnesses. John the Baptist agreed with Jesus' claim. Nicodemus comes to agree with Jesus' claim. The disciples come to agree with Jesus' claim. Many others say, I I believe this, Jesus. I believe he is the Son of God. I believe he is God himself. But you can see they weren't after actually what they were claiming. They just believed, no, Jesus is not God. He is not the Messiah. We refuse to believe you no matter what. And that's not so different today, perhaps, and perhaps even with some of you in this room. You have already set apart your heart to oppose christ there's a difference between a seeker someone who says jesus i am open to you showing me yourself i want to reveal i want you to reveal yourself to me i i surrender my heart and i want to in my and i'm going to hear and think (coughs) and actually consider what you're saying as a true possibility for my life That seeker is different than the seeker who says, show me your, you got to prove yourself to me. You have to show that you're real to me because I already do not believe. And I do think that some of you perhaps have that already uh, uh, adversarial position with Christ. And you've determined to actually do, as C.S. Lewis says, to put God in the dock. God is the one who is going to be grilled as the defendant, and you are the prosecutor, the prosecuting attorney who's pointing your finger and saying, you better prove yourself to me or else you're not valid, you're not true. I tell you that that's the same heart of the Pharisees. No matter what Jesus says, it's automatically, no, I refuse to believe you. Atheist biologist, Richard Dawkins, very famous atheist. He actually uh, was asked the same thing. Asked the question of what would it take for you to believe in God? I want you to listen to his response. He says, well, I used to say it would be very simple. It would be the second coming of Jesus or a great big deep booming bass Paul Robeson voice saying, I am God and I created, but I was persuaded that even if there was this big, booming voice in the second coming in clouds of glory, the more probable explanation is that it's a hallucination or a conjuring trick by David Copperfield or something. A supernatural explanation for anything is incoherent. It doesn't add up to an explanation for anything. It's very interesting, actually, we had Access High School this past week. This very question was asked, and this very question of, what would it take for you to believe in God? And some would say, If God came with a big sign from the sky or a neon voice, neon voice, neon sign, or a big booming voice came from the sky, and then I'll believe. But I am in agreement with Richard Dawkins. If you actually heard or saw something so dramatic that it was irrefutable proof, you would believe it's a hallucination. There is nothing that God could do in terms of miracles to convince you. In fact, Jesus made that same point in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. When the rich man was in hell, he uh, cries out to Abraham and says, Abraham, let me go back and tell my brothers and sisters about the fact that this is real, hell is real, and you need to believe. And Abraham said to him, even if he goes back, uh, even if you were to come from the dead, and go and tell your brothers and sisters, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe someone who has even risen from the dead. That is the problem. We think if you are waiting for a miracle or some grand happening for suddenly for you to believe, you'll be waiting forever. The miracle has happened. It's called the resurrection of Christ, but we're already, predisposed, presupposed to say, no, I will not believe. Truth, and here's something that I want to challenge you with is that it's not about the mind. And I know you're probably thinking, wait a second, what are you saying? The mind is what thinks. When, I think Richard Dawkins shows us that truth is a matter of the heart. That you have to believe in your heart and that's what actually unlocks your mind to make that what you hear to be rational. Otherwise, if there is no change of the heart, then the mind just simply dismisses it as irrational, illogical, regardless of how strong the evidence. And I know within, for our high school students, we're going through this whole year of trying to prove with rationality and logic and historical evidence that The gospel of Christ has firmer proof than any knowledge this world offers. But how can we ever convince someone of that? Save God himself opening the heart to believe and then to see, yes, I see that to be true. That's what Jesus does as the light. He came in this world as the light of the world, to show that which we think might be a possibility or maybe not, to convict us and say, it is true. This is real. This is historical fact. Christ does that. Third, the light of Jesus shows us the Father, as we've seen in verses 18 through 20. The Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And it's always interesting when you speak to someone about believing in Jesus. If I were to come up to somebody who did not know Christ or actually who even did or had been to church and say, do you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior? So often, it actually happens quite often, their answer is, yes, I believe in God. And then I have to repeat the question. Do you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior? Yes, I believe in God. And that's the problem is that believing in God, while it is a true statement, it actually does not get to the heart of what you believe in. Because a Hindu can say they believe in God. Benjamin Franklin, a deist, would say he believes in God. A Mormon would say he believes in God. But it is in Christ, God the Son. He is the one by which we have faith and trust and hope. We believe he is God. But believing in God as a theoretical idea is not enough. What Jesus is pressing us towards in verses 18 through 20 is seeing God as Father. And it is impossible to see God as Father unless you have a relationship with God as Father through Christ. It is Christ and he is the means by which we have this ability to call God Father. And so Jesus is the one who told us in the Lord's Prayer, when you pray, pray our Father. Don't say dear God, pray our Father. That assumes intimacy, relationship. That assumes that you actually love him. You adore him. You want to spend time with him. You want to be with him. It's a a real conundrum to think of God this way because the Bible in the Old Testament, as well in the New, by the way, sees God as Hebrews 12, 29 calls him a a consuming fire. Hear those words. If you've ever gone to a a campfire and you throw, and I, you know, all kids, especially boys, we like. Fires, right? We like throwing things into the fire, seeing them burn, because fire burns up everything. It's consuming. And that's what the Bible describes God as. So the concept of God as fire that provides light, the light of God without Christ consumes sinners. There's no hope for a sinner. So, how can this consuming fire be a father? I mean, what an odd mix. And so, therefore, you can understand the Pharisees' trouble. They were so troubled by the fact that Jesus is calling God Father. How can God, though, be feared, but be a God who treats so tenderly sinners that he calls them sons and daughters? There's only one way. The answer is in Luke chapter 23, verses 44 to 45. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. This is words that describe the crucifixion. And at the time where Jesus was to be placed on that cross, a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality took hold. Darkness covered the whole land, Because the full crushing weight of sin, every shame, every hidden thought, every action that was done against God, this sense of saying, God does not see. So all the vileness, all the secret sins, all those things that we say, I don't want anyone to know about this, because if they did, I would be so filled with shame. All of that is physically manifested by this darkness that has covered the land. But the problem with the cross is that the cross shines this brilliant light, a spotlight, on all those sins of your heart and your mind. You can't escape them. The person who believes in the gospel of Christ, they acknowledge that. We are people who say, I see what, I, I see you understand everything. You know, there is nothing hidden from you. That's Psalm 139. And David basks in that. He glories in that. He's so thankful for that. The the person who is known by Christ, understands the gospel, is so thankful that there is nothing hidden from him. And we're thankful because Jesus took that darkness from us. The Father, who is a consuming fire, does not destroy us. But instead, we're told in Revelation 21, 23 to 25, what will happen forever. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. I'm going to stop there for a second. You know, when John sees this picture, he sees it of a lamb. And whenever the lamb is mentioned in Revelation, specifically refers to the slain lamb, Revelation 4 and 5, the Passover lamb, the lamb that is a substitute, a substitute for us, So as if Christ had sinned, the same sins that we sin, had those vile hidden thoughts, every word, every curse word, every word of gossip, every time we've taken the name of the Lord in vain, all of that, it's as if Christ sinned those sins. And that lamb is shining brightly, the light. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. That darkest day at the cross, it shines brightly, our darkest actions and thoughts. So that you would forever call this gracious God that we have, Father. I hope actually that's how you respond to God, you think of God. Not just as God, but as our Father God. How will you respond to this? There's a story I want to close with. It's a story uh, um, told by Tim Keller. And he tells a story of Charles Spurgeon. Um, Charles Spurgeon was a preacher, a Baptist preacher, often called the Prince of Preachers. He lived in the 1800s in London. When he was a young man, he sometimes would go to church, but he didn't always go to church. And he was very far from God. He just was drifted far away, did it barely knew him. On one particular day, he decided to go to church on a snowy, snowy day. It was a little church just around the corner. So he goes in and he sits down. And in this church on that day, there's only one other person in the church sitting down. The preacher gets up. And it turns out that the minister, because of the snow, couldn't get it there to the church. So an elder who had never preached before preached the sermon. He was called for the emergency sermon on that day. And by the way, if you ever see that happen, have grace for that person. Emergencies do happen, but here's how God works. So this elder, he gets up nervously, opens the Bible, and he reads his passage. He doesn't know how to preach. He reads the text and he just keeps on repeating it over and over. He reads the text and the text comes from Isaiah. And he says, look unto me and be you saved all the ends of the earth. And he keeps on saying that over and over and then he closes. He looks out there and he says young Charles. And he says to him directly, look to me and be saved. Don't you see? You don't have to do anything. You don't have to walk anywhere. You don't have to. uh, You can't do anything. You just have to look. You have to see what he's done for you. You just have to look. After he had done that for about 15 minutes, he looks at Charles Spurgeon. Since there are only two people there. He looks right at him uh, and, he, and really he just stares right at him. And he says, young man, I see you are miserable and you're going to stay miserable until you obey my text. And the fact of the matter is, is that Spurgeon at that point had been miserable for a year. He was struggling with sin. He was trying to figure out how to live. He was thinking to himself, how do I get to know spiritual reality? He'd been doing everything. He'd sworn off this or that. He tried really hard, so he tried moralism, but it didn't work. He went into mysticism. He tried to fast and pray and tried to have experiences. But when he heard those words, obey my text, it just, the light just shined. And this is what he said. Jesus Christ, he came to see this. Jesus Christ is the light because the only way I can be saved is just to look. There's nothing I can do. I have to accept what he's done. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Some of you are miserable. Some of you are going to stay miserable. Do not stay miserable for the rest of your days. You have to obey the text. Jesus is the light of the world. Look to him. If you wanna know how to follow the light, Look to him, obey him, follow him, and he will lead you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray together. Father, this bread and wine that we get to take every week is a conviction for us. We do not take it because we had a a week without sin. In fact, it could have been a hideous week. A week filled and wrought with all sorts of hidden sins. Perhaps we've believed in the satanic lie that the Lord does not see me. But if we should repent, and if we actually see that the basis upon which we take this bread and wine is not our moralism, not even the fact that we have repented, it's the fact that you have given your life, and therefore our response is repentance and conviction we can come to this table freely. We can look and see the light of the world. For those who are blind, O Lord, there is not a single word that I can say right now by my own power and strength that will open hearts and minds and pull them and rescue them from darkness. Father God, I pray that the light of the Spirit of God would right now do the work that only you can do which is to shine forth your light into a dark heart and to show yourself, show the light of the gospel of Christ to them. Holy Spirit, we plead with you for those who have not trusted in you. May they not leave this place without a sense of believing and a desire to obey the text and to see that you are the living Lord. You are the light of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.